Welcome to the first ever episode two of our podcast, Fintech Insider. I'm David Breer and I'm joined as always by Jason Bates and Simon Taylor. Unfortunately, Chris Skinner can't make it today, but like the Lannisters, he does send his regards. Today, we've got some exciting news for you. We're coming to you live from Level 39 from the home of FinTech in London. We're very happy to announce Level 39 have come forward as one of our key sponsors and really want to thank them for their support. Over the next few weeks, we'll have much more news about sponsors, but there are gonna be some biggies in there. We have a great show for you today. By popular demand, we have Anna Herrera from the Wall Street Journal talking about what's been going on in the news this week. Coming up, we also have Frank Schul, who is the CEO of Cefello, talking to us about the Bitcoin halving. And also we have Ed and Jamie from the London-based bank as a platform, Bud. These guys are gonna be talking about what they've been up to and potentially how Brexit could impact their plans. Before we get started though, hopefully you'll notice a few improvements to the quality of the audio this week. We forked out for some new mics and a few processors, but just keep letting us know what you think. Right, let's get into it with what's been happening in the news this week. So in the news, uh, yeah, everybody's been playing Pokemon, Blink-182, a number one album in the US, and Clinton's running for president again. So apparently it's 2001 over in the States, which is interesting, although we're kind of having our own slight paradox over here as well. You know, we've kind of gone out of Europe, we've got a female prime minister, so we're sort of attempting going back to the 80s in the UK. So anything the US can do, kind of we can do better. Randomly and kind of annoyingly for me on social media at the moment is the, the sort of biggest story is, is actually about Pokemon which quite frankly I know almost nothing about being a, a mid-30s human being. I'm sure there are people out there a lot more educated than, than us about this one and actually, you know, guys from Bud, you seem to know a hell of a lot about this one. So can you try and educate us a little bit on, on yeah, Pokemon? I mean, with we, we making just... it super manly as well? You know, <laughs> keep, keep this kind of... I, 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 will, I refuse to make it super manly. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly due to lack of actually being able to. <laughs> so when you'd refer to us as trainers, first of all. So Apologies. Pokey trainers. So the, the trainers from Bud, can you explain to us Pokemon? <laughs> well, essentially it's everything. So growing up in the 90s, essentially, that Pokemon was the most important thing as a kid. That was it. Like, there was nothing more important. Training Pokemon, playing Game Boy Pokemon, watching it on the TV. I just don't, I can't, yeah. I can't explain anything like it. I don't know if he's the equivalent of yo-yos, I suppose. How old do I look? I had a ball and a cup. It's like So the latest... The latest incarnation, Pokemon yeah. Go. Yeah. What is it? Okay, so let's just go. Let's let's just go. Let's go back to the very first kind of um, you know version of Pokemon, which you know for us as kids was Pokemon cards. And the idea behind Pokemon cards was you collect all of these cards and all of these kind of animals, these fictional animals. And there were 152 of them, if you include the mythical ones as well. <laughs> um, and the idea was you would attempt to collect one of each. Now there were different things, you could get like a shiny card or you could just get a plain one. But then once you have all these cards, you would, you would fight with your friends. You know, you, they had little abilities with different damage stats and health and all that kind of stuff. So it was, you know, it was, it was this kind of all-encompassing, you know, tournament with your pals to collect and then do battle with these cards. Um, now, you know, 2016, it's, it's reinvented itself as an app. But the same principles still stand, which is collect these Pokemon and do battle. So it's kept much to its original. But it's not cars anymore, and it's people walking around city streets. Yeah, and yeah, dangerous. Yeah, so you could say that it's you know 
it could be the next health thing, mm -hmm. you know, after Knife Plus, I guess, uh -huh. you know. After Fitbit, there's this wonderful thing now where when kids are loitering outside your house, it's not scary anymore. <laughs> They're just the geeks with Pokemon. Yeah. yeah. Like I was saying earlier, my my flat where I live is actually a Poke Center. So wow. There's a lot of people outside of. You need to get that on Airbnb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think what's in, there could be, you know, there could be these websites popping up, you know, which is Airbnb esque, but you don't stay. You just come and spend some time, chill out, play games. Whilst you're there, you can. Yeah, you can get you might catch a decent Pokemon while yeah, you're exactly. there. So is there any link to this podcast and FinTech? Well, well I was thinking, so I'm, I'm trying to figure, this, so it's like top trumps and football cards together, yeah. right? Is that kind of where it's yeah. meets yeah. augmented reality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. So, so I guess, you know, the reason for bringing it up, other than just to watch you guys have fun, which is, which is <laughs> nice, was, was the, the financial brand actually put out a really interesting article of, of what it is that banks can actually learn from the, the sort of epidemic that's going on with, with Pokemon at the moment. And I thought there were some really interesting stats in there around usage. So I, I kind of think some of these are a little bit kind of apples and oranges, though. You know, we're sort of seeing it compared to things like Twitter and things like Instagram in mm -hmm. terms of usage statistics. But it kind of feels like this is like, this is a fad. I know you guys, like, you're going to wince at me slightly in terms of doing it. But does this feel like kind of a fad to you guys? Like, is this the Wii? You know, nobody, yeah. nobody using the Wii after 18 months of having it actually used it anymore. Especially people who don't like to necessarily go out of their houses in terms of doing stuff. So, what do you sort of feel would be the sort of lateral with it? I mean, in terms of getting people, getting something where there is a daily reason to go on, to spend time there, and you gain value. So, the value is you gain sweet Pokemon, right? That's the thing there, which is enough of a drop for some people. People are getting back, people gain value, which is an enjoyment from this. So, you know, if you give someone a daily reason to go on, get value. I mean, if you look at Facebook, you know, you go there to look at other people's lives. I mean, like, there is a value there for some people. I think, I think what's really interesting for me, anyway, on, on this is it's, it's the first mass-adopted product which uses augmented reality. Like, there's nothing been this big which uses AR. So I think before, yes, it's Pokemon, and, and yes, it's great for people like me who want to relive a bit of their childhood and, you know, and want to continue this thing that we had when we, 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 when we were younger what's really really cool about it is that this is a huge huge demonstration of the power of augmenting normal day life by dropping Pokemon in it you know they knew the audience was there because people have been crying out for Pokemon on iOS and Android you know just the original games we'd have been happy with mm -hmm. you know the original Game Boy games that would have been That'd have been ideal, right? But now Nintendo, it's they when they did AR, they nailed it. Right? Oh they, my god! They, they, they didn't it. kind of like mess around and sort of give you a half an experience that you were kind of like, oh, the AR bit was a gimmick. Mm -hmm. The AR seems to be almost multiplying the engagement people have and the enjoyment people have yeah. with it because you have to walk around. This is a genuinely new dynamic, almost and probably more so than the Wii controller was when yeah. people got really, mm -hmm. you know, whole new audiences were brought into gaming. But now this is ubiquitous. It's on every device. Everyone can do it. You've got a smartphone in your pocket already, and now you've got this ability to have this whole new dimension to reality. The, the amazing thing is, from a consumer standpoint, the amazing thing is, is it's not even, if I'm right in saying, I don't think it's even launched in the UK yet. No. Properly. No. But the desire is so high. I mean, just think about this. The desire is so high that people are willing to invest at least half an hour of their like, time to go set up a US um, Apple account, you know, go through the rigmarole of doing all of that stuff just to get their hands on a, ge on a game. It's, it really is amazing. And I just, 
kind of like trying to shoehorn it back to, into the world of, of finance. One of the things that I find really interesting, and there was a supermarket chain or a, or a homewares chain, I think, in, in, um, in China who did this, an augmented reality store. It was cool, they set it up in the car parks of their competitors, which I think is quite cool. But essentially, you know, turning bricks and mortar experiences into these augmented reality experiences on your, on your phone, I think it's just a really interesting idea. You know, what if a bricks and mortar bank was transcribed as an augmented reality bank that you could walk up to a clerk and you, you know, and you would get someone talking to you? Know, that kind of level of, 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 of innovation could be possible. What about if, um, a, what an IP licensing deal for Nintendo, if they, were to give away, oh, there was a special Pokemon offer for walking into this store on this day and signing up for a product or doing, you could really change, drive yeah. a lot of behavior where people would open bank accounts or do crazy things just to just to get the Pokemon. Like, it's, it's a really powerful it's motivator. Yeah. I mean, maybe you don't do it quite that evil, but you you take the point, it's, you could get people to come into the footfall through the door that normally just wouldn't think about coming in. I mean, is there, is there a, some sort of weird piggy bank version of these Pokemon that they, like NetWest can give out or something like they used to in the eighties? You know, like I'm down, I'm down with that. But you know, a new signing. If you so they get rid of their cash incentive for trading for changing current accounts and they start issuing rare Pokemon as your rare. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 I can see it. Can see it You've not heard of the NetWestmon. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think I think it's interesting. You know, like the the AR VR stuff. You know, like augmented reality versus virtual reality. Like this is the like you say this is the biggest version of augmented reality that we've seen. Yeah. You know, actually within banking, it's like find a branch, you know, yeah. and it doesn't really kind of give you anything additional from an experiential perspective. But, you know, I think the biggest thing, and, and actually, you know, Jim from the financial brand does a really good job of sort of pointing this out in the article actually, is, is kind of like the power of geolocation. You know, this is something that banks don't really do a good job at the moment of actually using. And, you know, given pretty much everybody who has a bank account has a mobile app now in terms mm -hmm. of actually engaging with it, you know all of this stuff, you know the data, you know where they are, you know where they're going, you know where they've been, you know, why not use that power of that data to really give a, a much, you know, much enriched experience. We were talking earlier about a article on Mashable where a guy goes to the zoo uh, with his Pokemon Go and he has the best day ever. And in the article he says, he, he kind of like wraps up by saying, you know, because the zoo is, you know, there's water around there. Oh, so all the Pokemon are, they're different elements, right? So there's fire, water. Because there are all these different elements around, you know, there's grass, there's big fields, there's water, there's a huge variety of, of, of Pokemon. So the geolocation is great there. But what's interesting is, you know, if a bank were to leverage geolocation, you know, if you were going more than 30 miles away from an ATM, you know, and they pinged you saying, by the way, you know, it's going to take you ages to find an ATM. Like, that's a huge value add for someone who lives out in the sticks or who's visiting another country, you know, and will, you know, and that's their main way of kind of getting cash out. So it hasn't been leveraged at all at, at the minute. Well, and I, I always sort of see the, you know, the examples around surfacing of information. My Apple device does it quite well in terms of apps that are used in the, the location where I am. So whether it's Starbucks and making that easy accessible for me, um, or if I'm in, in an airport and it's about tying into the Wi-Fi that I'm using, you know, actually all of this stuff is available. So, you know, banks really need to kind of make the most of it. It's just getting creative, isn't it? It's, it's kind of knowing, I think the gap number one is knowing what tools are available in the APIs, in the devices that you, you didn't think about, and then getting imaginative about what that customer journey might be, thinking as a consumer a little bit. Mm -hmm. and, and well, well, it's, it's contextual, isn't it? Yeah. And that actually the geolocation and the real-time nature and the intelligence of sort of modern services, location is just another one of those contexts. Yeah. 
but I guess it, it again, you know, does put you, it makes you want to, have, you have to put yourself in the, the skin of the consumer in order, to, that sounds eerie, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you have to put yourself <laughs> in their kind of shoes to work out, well, in this context, in a location, you know, what does this mean for me, you know? In advertising for a while, there was this phrase banded around, like, content is king, mm-hmm. you know? And then, but now it's moving so much more into like context is king, you know, getting that the right product or the right piece of advice at the right time when you're thinking about it, when you're in that location, when you're going somewhere, mm. you know, that's the, that's the really important this thing. This is why people are excited by AI and the whole chatbot phenomenon, right? Because the idea of being aware of some context so that you can provide contextually relevant experiences is super, super important. Okay, so I think we've probably geeked out about cool. that enough. Let's uh, let's move on to the next thing then. Overdrafts are more expensive than payday loans. Uh, Jason, what's the view on this one? Yeah, so this, this caught my eye on BBC website. Brian Milligan wrote an article on reporting on something from which, in which they were pointing out that borrowing money from an unarranged overdraft on your bank is actually more expensive than a payday loan, according to which. So if you borrowed £100 28 days from a payday lender, there's a maximum charge of £22.40. But going overdrawn without agreement from your bank could, could cost as much as a hundred, uh, well, ninety pounds, I think. There were some really interesting graphs, and and I, I just thought it'd be worth talking about because there seems to have been this move from EAR percentage sort of charges on unauthorized overdrafts towards fixed fixed fees, you know, certain number of pounds a day. The Royal Bank of Scotland has arguably some of the highest charges. So if you, you've got a, a ten pounds buffer, but then it charges six pounds a day up to a maximum of £90 in a 30-day period, which for a small overdraft just becomes absolutely ridiculous. So I'm just interested in what you guys thought, because on one hand, there's something, I I know from from talking to sort of end customers, there's something interesting about people wanting to know a a fixed amount. You know, if you say there's this £6 a day charge or this £2 a day charge, then actually that appears almost better than a 30% EAR, you know, interest rate. What do you think? I think it's interesting, uh, you know, generally people don't understand overdrafts or, or loans, do they? So the idea that none of this stuff is, is understandable, you know, most people don't get what APR actually is in terms of sort of going through it. But it's interesting looking at the graph that they had on there, which I believe was something from the BBC, but we've got RBS and Lloyd's actually the, the worst at this. So £80 and £90 in terms of the cost of borrowing of doing it. So. You know, we've got arguably sort of elements of government-owned banks that are kind of the worst for for customers, which is a, an interesting place. Simon, you'll be happy to know Barclays actually came out best in this, so your old colleagues are up there with doing it, which is always a nice place to be. But um, yeah, I think it's it's a difficult one, right? If, if actually a, a payday loan company with all of the press that's happened in the industry is actually much better for you than a bank borrowing on an overdraft, then um, that's kind of a worrying trend. It's the psychology of it. It's the psychology of that you've got this thousand percent APR versus you've got, oh, it's just a few pounds. It's like when somebody sells you something, let's say you're getting a car and they quote you the monthly price and then they quote you the, the weekly price or a slightly higher price per week and everybody gets confused by the fact that it's about four and a half weeks in a month and actually the 52 weeks in a year, it actually ends up being more expensive than the first price they gave you. So, you know, sort of your, your 90 pounds a week doesn't sound too bad, but actually when you add that up and it's three, 400 pounds a month, you go, oh, no, that, that's way more than I wanted to pay. So there's these old sales tricks that I think are being played out. Um, and it'd be interesting to see if any more grab, if this snowballs or if it just kind of becomes a way in which, you know, banks do make a lot of money. So do you think this is something that the FCA should potentially be addressing then? So, you know, with regards to 
customers actually understanding what APR is and actually how the, the sort of functions of overdraft and, and the loans work, then, you know, is this something that it's actually about an educational process? Yeah, so really? financial literacy, I don't think is the responsibility of the regulator per se. It's interesting. So my former employer had a program called Money Skills, which was teaching students and school children about money. And I think a lot of banks have, have similar sorts of things. But these to generally fall in the realms of, you know, a few people going to a few schools. Actually, the government had done a lot as well around trying to educate people on what APRs are. But, you know, it's, the issue isn't the people that are 11, 12, 13. It's the people who are, you know, sort of 30 through 60, and especially some of the more vulnerable sections of society. How you reach those people is, is, is very, very difficult. But I'm, I'm not sure that that's ever going to happen back in the kind of Mondo days of going out and, and doing customer development interviews. Uh, you could you could take someone who's a maths graduate and talk to them about a uh, hundred pounds at ten percent EAR or APR over a month. How much will you pay back? Mm-hmm. And that they know the maths. It's just a case of well, when does it compound? How long does it take? What period are we talking? Actually, I don't really know. And I think this has been used so long as a way of sort of obscuring what the actual real fees will be. I think that there's a, especially with the digital banks, there'll be a big move towards sort of real pounds and pence charges, Mm -hmm. whether that's sort of paid up front or paid after the fact, that actually the, you know, getting understanding for what this will cost you in pounds and pence actually leads to something interesting. But of course, at the moment, you know, I don't know, 20% EAR APR is going to be just pence for a hundred pounds worth of debt. Whereas at the moment, because people are, you know, are just sort of getting used to this this whole thing, uh, it's almost being taken advantage of. Suddenly it's like six pounds a day, five pounds a day, which doesn't sound a lot, but it's, it's huge amounts in terms of interest rates. There's a whole branding thing about it's either on your side or there for you or, you know, kind of all of these sorts of things. Or, or you know, the, any number of slogans, and I don't mean to single out any, any organisation with that, but, you know, every bank, I think every major bank has some sort of where with you, where are you? Well, on your side, sort of thing. So, what is? How do you show that in actions? Well, I think you dog food that. You you show that through actual transparency of pricing, and that would be something that would be very interesting to see. Is but I don't know how you enforce it. Do you think it's likely that banks will want to be transparent in this? I mean, why haven't they been doing it yet? Why is it okay for them to kind of confuse people and charge them so much? I think naturally the products are confusing. Compound interest is just a confusing thing anyway. Um, so then to try and explain it means that you reduce sales. So you're stuck in this kind of, um, well, I'll explain it enough, but actually if I explain it too much, I'm going to lose sales. So they've got this real sort of moral hazard situation that I think is very, very tough to balance. But is, is this about the, you know, like slightly fractured, you know, banks are, are kind of very large organisations, right? In the statistics we've got TSB and Lloyds coming out the same in terms of actually what the representative returns would be in terms of actually the cost of doing it whereas you know so the, from a marketing perspective TSB is set up as a very unique proposition in terms of what it's doing so but they're coming out exactly the same as, as other banks in terms of where they're, they're doing it so I think to, to your point Anna actually it kind of feels like the marketing needs to almost kind of become the reality doesn't it you know the the marketing team's pitch of we're there for you or, or mm. you know I'm not sure what bank that is but it's got to be yeah. one of them right but in terms of doing it then you know we need to actually start seeing that in proper action in terms of the product makeup and actually what they're really doing to customers but there's something there about the business model you know in the end UK you know populace has got, has got used to free banking and someone somewhere in an office there's probably a cost for that. around here you know, is trying to work out, well, how do we how do we get money in a way that actually customers will accept and Indeed. actually think is a good deal. And so this is one of those those ways that actually, you know, it's, it's that interesting mix of 
the business model supporting a large branch-based network, you know, thousands of people mm-hmm. in a way that's acceptable to charge those end customers. And, and my belief is genuinely, and maybe this is coloured by having worked in a bank, that people are genuinely trying to do the best things for their customers, um, but they're stuck with a lot of interesting challenges to be able to do the best things for their customers. Not least a complex regulatory framework, not least a complex legacy, um, a complex history, a lot of customers already the old saying that the reason God could create the world in, in, se- in six days and on the seventh day he rested was because he didn't have millions of customers in legacy IT. <laughs> and, and I think when you think about the challenges they have, I do have some sympathy for that. Yeah. What do you think, Anna? I don't know. I think, I think maybe what's happened with the money transfer stuff, and I don't know how much percentage of the market they've gotten, just that push on, on making people realize that they're being charged too much. I think that might kind of help what the banks do. I, I just don't, I, I, from the sense of just normal people, I, I don't think they even realize how much they're getting charged and I don't think they would ever consider switch. I don't think they ask their friends, how much does your bank charge you on overdraft fees? I think they probably hope that they're not gonna get to the end of the month and go on overdraft again. That's their main concern, right? So perhaps the idea is helping people not get to overdraft rather than how, do, how much do we charge them once they're there, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting yeah, okay. point. It's an interesting one. I, you know, I think we can talk for hours on this one because it gets deep quite quickly, doesn't it? But um, moving on to the next thing, we've we've got uh, a really interesting thing coming out of CB Insights, actually. So we've got Fred Wilson from Union Square Ventures saying corporate VCs are the devil, which I think is quite a uh, quite an interesting statement to make. Simon, how does this go? So this is an interesting one. Consider that Fred Wilson is not a corporate VC, and then um, why he might be saying that. So I think there is a bit of perspective there coming from from what it is. But ultimately, I think a lot of West Coast VCs in the United States have looked at pure consumer plays. So Facebook is the classic example. They're they're all looking for the Facebook with Snapchat. And in fintech, they're looking for the Facebook of fintech. You know, who's going to be the one that gets rid of all the banks like kind of the internet did to the media industry. And I think we know the answer now. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> clearly Mondo. Or <laughs> um, moving or, or, or several others. But, uh, you know, Mondo for sure. I think the, the beautiful thing about that thesis is its simplicity. I think what it lacks is an understanding of the industry. And, of course, the, the counter-argument to that from a consumer VC is, well, that's what the newspapers said. Um, and, and I think, yes, okay, maybe it is what the newspapers said, but also when you're moving somebody's money or you're looking after somebody's house or you're looking after somebody's pension, it's a little bit different than delivering the daily newspaper. So there's, there is this kind of you know, horses for courses type scenario where if you're a startup and you are doing something that solves a real problem for banks as a customer or for insurance as a customer, then maybe corporate VC is a good angle for you because it gives you access. It buys you access to these companies. It, it buys you access to, to a lot more that you didn't have before. But actually, you know, there's a real strategy question about would you be better going after the, the, the consumer side. So if you've got some analytics products that really helps asset managers, maybe a West Coast VC might get that. Maybe, maybe corporate VC might be stronger. Um, but actually, if you're building something that's you know, like a, a money transfer product designed to compete with the banks, then maybe corporate VC is, is less interesting. So I honestly think it's horses for courses, and that's that's oversimplifying it. I, I think there's a, you know, Fred, Fred actually made a, a few particular sort of uh, choice quotes here. So he says, making a minority investment in something, what does that actually do? It just kind of makes you look smart in front of your boss. So, you know, is there an element here where they're sort of seeing minority corporate investment as kind of like PR exercise, or what, what are we seeing here? I think, I imagine all of you know lots of people who work for corporate VCs at banks, so I think they're genuinely interested in 
like investing in the companies and perhaps making an investment is an easier way for a bank to engage. So there is a like PR element to it, but I don't believe that the people working there yeah. think it's a PR exercise. So lots of banks launched venture funds in recent years, but they've been doing principal strategic investing for decades, right? And it's and it's and it's been going pretty well, right? So it was more on the capital market side and it was more in areas where they needed to work together. So I think in that it's completely different, but perhaps Fred Wilson wasn't talking about that. He was talking about taking a stake in a payments app or something and in that case it's a bit it, it depends on whether are you actually going to use it because if you're just going to put money in them and then never even integrate it in your own offering then then what's the point really like it's just more than a PR thing it's more maybe a vanity kind of <laughs> and then and then what happens if they want to sell and if you're really an amazing startup do you really want money from a from a bank if you're not ever going to use your distribution well I, I think this is the thing right it's kind of actually given the market we're in and given you know fintech is kind of so hot right now do fintechs kind of have a little bit more leverage than they used to so you know actually they have a if you've got a really good idea a really strong business model you kind of have a bunch of people to choose from from a, an investment perspective so you know would would this kind of banking VC thing be at the front of the queue or would it be more in another sort of slant? Well, so I think there is a thing around um, cap table vanity for these startups and like given the market they're going after you want the right VCs so if I've got um, you know certain West Coast VCs in my cap table it means I'm this type of company it means I can attract more investment and I'm gonna get press just because I've got this VC invested in me you know the tech press loves that story um, but again, I come back to the, the previous point, which, and, and I think Anna made this point really well, in, especially in capital markets or in market infrastructure, if I'm something that is a, a product that banks are actually going to use, then strategic investment will allow those banks to drive that product roadmap to, you know, they're incentivized to become a customer of it. They can, they can really do a, do a lot with it. So I think that cap table vanity thing is, is something to consider. Um, and to the point Anna made as well about, you know, is there something about just having the, the VCs themselves, the corporate VCs having a trophy in the cabinet? Maybe a little bit, but actually there's a business case there around learning a lot as well. So if I've got a board seat and I'm learning from this company and I'm genuinely helping it grow and it becomes successful, maybe it doesn't, it's venture after all, but if it does become successful and as an institution I learn something as well that allows that institution to do something better, that's a valid business outcome I think as well that's often not discussed. But, it, but it's interesting then from the startup perspective because they, you know, do you become then a tourist destination for yeah. banking execs? Oh, you know, what am I going to do today? I'll, the go petting and, zoo. I'll go and look at the petting zoo and, you know, and get an education. And what do they need? Oh, they only want 100,000. Great, let's give them that. We'll sit, you know, put them in one of our buildings and then we'll, we'll learn from them. I think you know, I was uh, talking to one of the guys from one of the big banks who was talking about sort of fintech being the, you know, the new R&D department for his bank. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting from a startup perspective, you know, what are you looking for? Connections, ecosystems, intelligence, someone who can educate you, someone who can give you money. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole kind of a set of, of things you can get from any investor. And does a bank, you know, really, where does it fit in each of those categories? So I think what a bank does really well is understand regulation and compliance and some of that, that governancey type stuff. And actually, if you're the type of company that needs to understand that, then a partnership with a bank could be could be a way to learn that, but it could also be a way to learn how the banks did it and therefore restrict your creativity. So I, I, t I see it both ways, but actually if you're playing, I, I think if you're playing in the corporate or cap market side, then actually it makes a lot more sense. And I think the second, third wave of FinTech for me is not about consumer. 
It's about transforming corporate payments. It's about transforming how capital markets work. It's about new asset classes. And this is something that actually is, is kind of like exciting for a very small number of people because <laughs> everybody gets consumer technology. Like I've got this new app on my phone and it's a widget and it changes how I move my money, great. But actually that's like one or 2% of what banking is. Yeah. The rest of it is all this cap market stuff that only like 5,000 people in a given country actually understand, but is what makes the economy go round. So that stuff is where fintech is kind of moving. And there's a ton of white space and a ton of opportunity there that I think the likes of a Fred Wilson and this article may, may be missing. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's really interesting. It, it brings up the whole, you know, for the consumer side of things and actually particularly from a, a fintech's perspective, then given you have this choice, you know, how do you select these people? Mm. How do you go from we're desperate for cash, please somebody give us some <laughs> money to, to sort of survive for the next six months to actually being very selective about your, what you're doing. You know, and I know kind of offline, we've talked about sort of fair trade fintech a little bit in terms of actually, you know, how do we ensure things like people like VCs are actually becoming a lot more kind of ethical about how they're investing and, you know, what the outcome of that investment actually is. So I think, you know, this is a really interesting space. We, you know, there's definitely a lot of kind of legs to run on this one. So uh, next one, Jason, there's a, an interesting article coming out about Amex getting into SME lending. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, I saw on um, Cranes New York, there was a, a piece that Amex's venture, which is called Working Capital Terms, will approve loans in minutes from existing small business cardholders who can then use the money to pay vendors. And they can, they'll do between 1000 and 750000 with fees of half a percent for a 30-day loan to 1.5% for a 90-day loan, where they'll... Sort of deposit the, the funds directly into the account in the next couple of days. I guess it interested me just from a point of view of someone else getting into that SME space mm -hmm. because there seems to have been these successive waves of fintech from the PCA sort of account, the you know, uh, current account, Starling Atom, Tandem, Mondo stuff. And I think if anyone pulls me aside at a conference now, quite often they'll whisper in hushed tones, I'm starting an SME bank. You know, and there, there seems to be this move up, this tide that's moving up the beach from the sort of individuals to small business and beyond. And that the battleground for that seems really interesting, both in terms of new banking vendors that are coming along, but also lots of people looking at that, the difficult space of how do you lend to small businesses? Yeah, I'm curious to see, because one of the issues that the peer-to-peer -peer marketplace lenders, I guess is the right term now, had with, with lending was just origination. Now they're struggling to get people to give them money to lend but initially it was origination so if you're Amex you don't need to struggle to find people to lend to you have so many so what does this mean for the existing players especially as they face a bit of shaky times in the US lots of marketplace lenders are partnering with firms like Alibaba or even Uber to lend so that they could have that ne network would Uber rather partner with Amex maybe because they already deal with them for something else so I think it's interesting on the competitive side of things there's also something about the data as well and about sort of credit risk decisions. You know, does Amex have, you know, a better view compared to a credit reference agency as to how particular businesses are doing? And maybe this is just the kind of thin end of the wedge of, of people using vast data sets and, you know, previous histories and all kinds of, you know, different data in order to, to power that all up. Well, definitely, you know, Amazon would have a much better review of my credit history than uh, my bank right now in terms of sort of doing stuff with all the tech purchases. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's an interesting idea of who actually has the best view of the customer, right? 
I think there is a liquidity question as well. So SME liquidity is still pretty crunched, um, and then the peer-to-peer lenders can't actually you know create the liquidity they need to to, to buy um, a, a lot of the debt that's out there. So it's interesting that Amex are in a position with their balance sheet that actually appears this appears to be a statement to the market that their balance sheet is strong and they're able to lend, which could create you know some something really interesting. So it could be quite timely and one to watch. Especially, I guess, considering the, the whole sort of Brexit thing, which is actually the next story up. So we've got an interesting thing on efinancialcareers.com. So we've got US founder in London says no intention to move post-Brexit, which is a kind of an interesting one. So who, who wants to take that? Yeah, so I, I spotted this article and I, I really liked that it had like a US flag and a British flag going on. It was kind of like a little bit, it's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's a Team America vibe to it. I, I guess the the sort of eventuality now, given the, the kind of appointments that when Boris and Trump get together, those flags might be kind of flying in opposite directions, right? But yeah, possibly, although he's foreign office now, so who knows. Um, <laughs> But uh, you know, so what I thought was interesting about this is there appears to be a couple of things that are real statements of confidence coming from the tech sector. So Rory Ketman-Jones did an article on the BBC as well uh, around uh, a study that Tech UK did. Uh, and this study was kind of saying, do you think it will be more difficult to hire? Yes, we kind of do. And do you think um, the, the market is worse for the next six months? Yes, we do. Do you think this changes your business? No. Do you think you're going to go on and be successful? Yes. And I think that speaks to an optimism in the tech community generally, but I think it speaks to an optimism, maybe in naivety, but an optimism in, in London as a tech scene. You know, you've got five years of momentum here that's kind of built up and people who've got plans and they've got products that they're shipping and, and all they want to do is just kind of get on with the job of, of delivering that, um, which I think is quite, quite interesting. But it, time will tell if that, that comes through, but I thought that that sort of PR is now coming back out of London to say we're open for business. So I I hate to be the gloomy one every week on this, but first of all, they mentioned, the company they mentioned is Credits, right? They're headquartered on the Isle of Man. So they're already not in London. So, I mean... They left the Isle of Man already. (laughs) They left already, even before this happened. But aside from that, I think, first of all, it's human nature not to sit there and cry. You can't have a whole city. Just you have to go, you have to go to work, right? And then... Also, I mean, VCs started saying, oh, we, we don't mind investing, but they have to say that, right? They have huge stakes in companies here. They can't suddenly say we're worried because then their LPs will start freaking out mm-hmm. and what are they going to do? So and so I think I think there is a more positivity because that's normal. Nothing was going to stop instantly, but I think we'll have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. And we might not have like big stories about people saying they're going to move yet, but I think it will be more subtle but it, and more gradual if something changes or nothing might change. It's just it's just like in these few months, I don't think we will see like $60 million investments in a London company. I think that would be a bit yeah. risky, right? I, I, I have to say, I'm still not over this one. Uh, you know, like I know we, we sort of, mm-hmm. it was quite cathartic for us all to get it off our chest last week in terms of sort of going through it. But I'm, you know, I still kind of, I think the scars of this is gonna be kind of with us for a while. Yes. You know, I, I think we have started to see, you know, like EasyJet, kind of came out and said they are leaving right you know they're going to move their headquarters to sort of somewhere within european base to to take advantage of everything that europe actually brings us but so uh, yeah not wanting to kind of open up a can of worms again and go up for another hour on it type thing but i think we've got a, a long a long way to go so there is uh, one thing i'm aware of where a couple of deals um that were going to be done have either been postponed or killed um, and I think that's that is scary, right? And and there's there's a few people that were thinking of starting something here that are no longer thinking of starting something. Now, if that is the perception in a year's time, we're in trouble. 
and so I think the positive PR um, I'm all for, for kind of keeping that going a little bit more and, and trying to keep that going just because I care about London to a certain degree because I want to keep living here but <laughs> but at the same time you know there's got to be some results behind that and people have got to be able to be do the deals and uh, so you know Time will tell. Well, the, really well, the, you know, the headline of this one is that I'm not moving home, right? So they're maybe not moving to the States, but that doesn't mean they're not necessarily moving to like Amsterdam or Berlin or something, right? We've, yeah. we've kind of seen the panel bus rolling around Canary Wharf telling people to uh, to go over to Berlin and <laughs> welcome, to the, uh, welcome to the future type thing. So, you know, I think this one has got a long way to go. So we'll really sort of see how it, how it pans out. Um, next up, we've got a really interesting one, actually. So Revolut has heavily been in the news this week. You know, they have got funding in a, a kind of a serious way. So who's up for this one? So I saw an article. I don't know how much they received. I think it was about 12 million, was it? Um, so they, they went out to raise a million, but they had 12 million of pledges. So that, that's sort of way over, over you know, what they did, but obviously have kind of followed that crowdfunding trend. So Revolut's interesting because an FX product that claims to be kind of making money, but the, every user I speak to, whether they work for a bank or they're just an individual, really likes this product because it's so simple. It is just a card and an app where I do FX and that's all I do. And it's really super simple and really kind of easy to use. They're gaining traction. I think they talk about growing at 1,500 users per day. So they're kind of doing doing pretty well by all accounts. And, and that as a crowdfund is quite significant. Now, you know, is that a good route for them to go or, or a bad route for them to go? I mean, I'm open to thoughts, but it's interesting nonetheless. I heard they'd connected, but I might be wrong, but I heard they connected the ability to invest in recommending friends or being users. Yes. So that was, I think, very smart, right? Because uh, why would you get, uh, I don't know how many thousand investors uh, if, if you don't at least get customers, right? Yeah, yeah. So. But it seems to be, it, it's interesting. I mean, you go back to sort of Go Henry, which I think was last year, they raised, I think, just a little under 4 million crowdfunding. And then obviously Mondo did a million there. Uh, and then Tandem came out and did a million as well. And now Revolut have come along. And it's, it's interesting, this kind of the next wave of either sort of uh, next generation banks or, ne or next generation banking products is obviously sort of in a, in a world where you may, might say, well, no one's switching, no one's moving. Well, a lot of individuals seem to be investing. You know, I think that the, out of the 12 million, it's something like six and a half thousand individuals. So that's about 2,000 pounds each, which, is, which isn't sort of inconsequential. But it does, um, I think it's just a really interesting idea, or it seems to be a thing, a trend, that, you know, that crowdfunding is, is funding these, these new platforms. I think there is this World Economic Forum kind of position where they, they push this idea that democratization of access to um, investments and, and capital is something that, you know, the, the world elite sees as a major trend and a major theme. It's interesting as well that the regulators like the SEC in the US and the FCA here have been very accepting of that because I think the the natural inclination has been that unless you're putting $100,000 in something then you don't know what you're doing or unless you have a certain net worth then you don't know what you're doing. So crowdfunding kind of circumnavigates that and gives people a stake in the future and indeed our, our new Prime Minister is talking in, here in the UK about giving um, consumers and, and people access to, to the board of things. So could be a major theme and trend we see as a kind of reaction to the neoliberalism of the last sort of 10, 15 years. I think something that's interesting on the tubes at the moment, on sort of the London Underground, is that uh, Travelex are now advertising their Supercard, yeah. of which I'm a, uh, I'm a big fan. But it's interesting, uh, what I find interesting there is Supercard is a essentially a proxy card. It's a way that you can connect a 
what is a prepaid debit card without you prepaying it right. to your, your domestic bank account, use that abroad, pay the interbank transfer rates without having to actually load any money onto it. So arguably an even you know, simpler, more transparent product but this is a major organisation. I heard City had a similar app. I was telling someone who worked at City about Revolut, and they told me, "Well, we've had it for ages. We just never advertise it because we have so many products." And yeah, okay. maybe this is what Fred Wilson was on about. That if you've got a new brand and you are genuinely a new com- company, you've got a bit of cool uh, factor that, that that even under the brand of Travelex, you would have never gotten if Travelex had just hidden the logo entirely of Travelex. Maybe this would have got more traction. Well, I mean. They've gone through a big digital transformation. You know, they're they're doing all kinds of interesting stuff. I think what interests me is to is whether is this whole idea about whether existing incumbents will start to eat up smaller players as as they come along by creating arguably you know a same or better version of that product, but with a big brand name and a big reach and a big budget behind it. You know, how many of these things are protectable businesses versus? something that actually a, a travel ex could look at and say well they're going to eat our uh, holiday money transfer business so you know we can come out with a product too couldn't they just offer couldn't a bank just offer it on your normal cards potentially just yeah. have that switch on an app like is it that why would i need to get another card i mean I, I, I guess they could do but it's it's kind of almost coming back to the overdrafts thing as well it's kind of actually people start to eat into their existing business models mm-hmm. and that's kind of the hardest thing to to look at but you know, looking at the stats in uh, the Business Insider article here, you've got 200,000 users and they've only existed for, for just over a year. Apparently half a billion pound has been spent on these already and they're, they're acquiring 1,500 people a day. So, you know, if a bank can't see that this is potentially an opportunity for them, then that's kind of quite scary, isn't it? Mm-hmm. it? It is interesting on that, what you lead with, because, you know, I hate to bring up Mondo again, but in terms of the interbank transfer, you can use the card and it just comes out of your account but because that's never been a sort of a marketing drive it's you know would you see it for that need Uh, so so there's something interesting about that marketing about what particular products are for and whether that will be just yeah does Barclays turn around and say well you know we can do exactly the same thing and you know here you go what effect does that have I don't know maybe it generates some change in the market that'll be interesting to watch I know inside the large banks, these fintech apps like Mondo and, and Revolut do get passed around and people sign up to them. And you know, the, the individuals kind of, shh, 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 I've, I've got this, I've got Mondo, I've got a card, do you want to see it, do you want to see it? And, and there is this kind of like, I, I've got a fintech thing and they all want to learn from it and, and kind of, so over time that does start to change the offerings I think within the industry. Last one, and this one's quite an interesting one coming out of the States. So we've got the US government actually saying that if you make less than $20 an hour, a robot is probably going to take your job, which is quite an interesting statement to make. So, you know, they've, they've actually put out a, a graph with this one as well. So if you earn less than $20 an hour, there is a, it looks like about a 76% chance that somebody, that, that a robot will take your job. If you earn 20 to $40, like there's around about a 26% chance that a robot will take your job. I haven't been able to tell exactly from this, exactly like the duration that they're talking about this, like if it's a kind of impending mm-hmm. sort of Terminator 2 style taking over the world thing about to happen here. But, you know, very interesting sort of comments coming out of the, the you know, the US government on this one. What a, what a scary headline. But I, I think that the thing with this is you look at similar headlines in the 1920s and 30s around the Industrial Revolution, 
that actually the machines were going to take our jobs and, and we, we've got like great employment 95% employment or something like 5% unemployment so it almost has nothing to do with the technology of the day what your employment level is it just changes what the employment is it turns out we as a species really like to be seen as useful in doing something um, in the 1930s there was, um, I think it was the Ford Motor Company had a look at putting somebody on four hour work days and of course it was the norm at the time that the, the woman would be the housewife and the man would be home for just um, you know, kind of most of the day and not at work for eight to ten hours a day and of course uh, women wisely got sick of men being under their feet and, and kind, of, uh, <laughs> kind of just around far too much but the other thing was the peer pressure from, from men to you know the, who did have the eight to ten hour job and the guys who had four hours of work were seen as less than those who had um, kind of the eight hours of work so there's a real peer pressure thing um, and what the, this uh, article I was suggesting, I think, uh, that I read a long time ago, I think it was on TechCrunch, suggested was that uh, we create jobs. We find something for humans to do, whether we know we're doing it or not. They, they coined the phrase, the muck job. But it's <laughs> things that robots could do, right? So if you think about what a McDonald's server does, they take the hamburger from there and give it to you and then take your money and put it in the till. All of that could be automated. But actually, the human experience is where that brand and all of the other brands like it choose to differentiate. You've, you've clearly not at uh, McDonald's recently then, but the, uh, the human interaction there is not quite what it should be. But, uh, but no. I try not to cast aspersions on brands that are out there, but all right. But uh, yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting one, how automation will change it. And you know, really, what is it that we as humanity kind of do in the, the kind of next phase of this? Quite terrifying. Kind of makes me think of what's the uh, what's the Disney robot thing? Uh, Wally. 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 Yeah. It kind of feels like we're all going to be kind of in that that wave, which Wally. quite frankly I, I will. Fat and lying back on things watching Netflix. <laughs> exactly. I, I think I'm there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 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 not a big leap, quite frankly, is it? I'll be honest in, in my instance anyway. But um, I, I think there's something interesting about machine learning and the fact that we're not talking about sort of manual labour jobs. You know, McKinsey have done actually a really nice article on uh, or white paper on which jobs are most likely to be removed. And, and actually, there are things that are unpredictable physical work. You know, it's difficult to automate. You know, I think everyone's seen that. Is it Western Robotics or the, uh, you know, the YouTube clip of... Uh, of robots falling over, <laughs> yes, exactly. trying to open a door. Exactly. But, um, but there's things like, I don't know, financial work, underwriting. You know, that actually machine learning is probably going to get a lot better at with the data sets than, than an individual. So there are, there are lots of white-collar jobs that, that will be will be, um, will be will be put in danger. My favourite article I read a while ago on uh, on sort of automation and work creation was this idea that the pyramids were built by slaves, where you know you were cracking the whips and and making the the uh, muscular guys pull along great big bits of stone. But actually, at the time, the Nile Valley was arguably the most you know fertile place on earth. It was just amazing. Everyone got food. It was absolutely fine. You know, the fields were just sprouting corn wherever you looked. So what do you do with all these people? And actually, make, maybe making pyramids is a great thing. So, but, you know, maybe that's rubbish. But I quite like the idea of, um, of what do you do when actually most of the population of the Earth might not actually have to do anything in order to, you know, to survive. You create Pokemon Go. <laughs> I'm back to the beginning. It does, it all yeah. comes around. Yeah, po Pokemon, Netflix, you know, it becomes an occupation. I'm, I'm well and truly all up for that. But um, And, and I, I guess despite, you know, what the, the Pokemon fans probably like to believe, then maybe that's not the biggest thing that's kind of happened this week. So, you know, maybe if we, we sort of move on, the, the, the biggest thing probably looks like what's happening in, in Bitcoin. So 
you know, the mining reward is about to halve. So, you know, Simon, what, what does this actually mean? The halvening. <laughs> the halvening is upon us. So um, a, a miner in Bitcoin is a bit like a payments processor. So Bitcoin being the ephemeral virtual currency. Um, so instead of having pounds, I have this, uh, this, these wonderful things called Bitcoins and I have a mobile application on my phone in which I store my Bitcoin balance. Unlike with a bank where my balance is on a computer somewhere outside of Coventry or you know, somewhere sort of in the countryside, um, then what happens is the money is actually stored either in your device or in somebody else's computer. It physically sits there like cash in your pocket. Uh, and in order to maintain this network, instead of having banks, what they have is this concept called miners. And these miners are like payments processors, as I mentioned. But why would these miners do their job if I'm not paying them to do it and nobody else is paying them to do that job? It's, it's really confusing. So the miners actually get paid something called a block reward. A block reward is a way of saying thank you or a way of saying, well, it's actually an economic incentive to maintain the network's integrity. So if, if I go to send money to David or to Anna, um, then I'm in a position where I've just broadcast something to the network. A miner then competes to pick that information up perform some really complicated maths on it, which we call proof of work. And then once the proof of work is completed, it and if it's one of the first to do it, one of the first six miners to do it, it receives a reward. And that reward started out at 100 Bitcoins, it then went to 50 Bitcoins, it then went down to 25 Bitcoins, and it's now, and, and, and then 12 and a half and so on. Can I, can I just sort of point something out here? So is there any sort of correlation here between us having a, a lady conservative prime minister and the miners getting screwed again? Anything I can pick up or is this just coincidence? Uh, that is probably purely coincidence, but it's a good line anyway, so I'm going to go with it. And I, I'm writing the article as we speak. Yeah, in my head. I'm typing it. That Live great tweeting head. it. Yes. That, is, that is a headline. That's a hashtag right there. That is brilliant. So the, no, sadly not. Is it, is it worth it to mine now, how much, given how much, how many Bitcoins you get and how much money you're spending? This is a really interesting question. So what the, the Bitcoin miners have become more and more of a scale operation. So the original thesis behind Bitcoin is we will smash this cartel of 192 banks and make everybody a miner and we'll peer-to-peer -peer validate each other's transactions. But actually something like 60% of the network is now controlled by nine mining companies of which more than 60% of that is in China. So you've got to this point where the economics of the network have incentivized creating scale. And if you've got free electricity off the Chinese government and you've got um, you know, labor that's almost free and you've got um, space that's almost free, then your economics are pretty good, but your profits per transaction and per block have gone down. So there's a really interesting question about will this just simply get rid of all of the small miners and you know, start seeing more consolidation in the space? Um, I don't know. Um, certainly some of the miners out there have been making confident statements about their own margins, but then they don't publish their balance sheets, so we just don't know. My theory is that we will see the smaller ones start to disappear. Uh, you'll see less and less of the pooled mining that we've had historically and more and more conglomeration of mining. Um, because what we haven't seen, and, and the original um, white paper behind Bitcoin suggested that what we would see is a switch towards transaction fees, mm -hmm. so that we would volunteer transaction fees in the network because we all saw that Bitcoin was so incredibly useful to our day-to-day -day lives. That hasn't happened. I was going to say the same thing, because there, there seems to be economists that are looking at this in a variety of different ways. You know, is Bitcoin an asset? Is it a, is it a currency? Mm -hmm. And actually, like, will Bitcoin price go up or go down? Mm -hmm. You know, will it become more valuable because we're creating less of them? Or, you know, 
there, there seem to be no one, no one seems to have come up with a, this is definitely what will happen. Indeed, virtual currencies or digital currencies or whatever label you want to put on them, and especially Bitcoin, probably closest resembles gold, but it also kind of resembles a currency too. There's a really good, um, you know, those old sales tick boxes. This one has this feature, this one doesn't have this feature type. You know, well, you want the, the pro model because it's got all of the ticks. Well, Bitcoin on that, you know, ticks some things for a currency and crosses others, and it ticks some things for an asset and crosses others. It's this really weird thing. It's probably closer to gold. It's, it's interesting to me that gold bugs tend to love Bitcoin. And, and that kind of tells you a lot. It's interesting to me that when the economy is down, the price of Bitcoin rises. Mm. It's, it's a hedge. It's a hedge against like, instability. But the other thesis that the Bitcoin community would argue is that, that because Bitcoin is this uh, kind, of, kind of fixed amount, there's a fixed amount of Bitcoin in the world, that after which there will be no more Bitcoins, it's actually an inflationary currency, not a deflationary currency. So unless four core um, developers change their mind, then there will only ever be a certain amount of Bitcoins, unlike what we're seeing in banking at the moment, which is we're printing money for fun and we're moving into sort of negative interest rates. It's one of the only asset classes that is growing, but it's also not when there's nowhere near enough liquidity in Bitcoin for institutional investors to find it interesting. So, Are there still people who genuinely think Bitcoin will be kind of a global currency that everyone Absolutely. will use? Like they I, I, are genuinely <laughs> convinced and they're not saying it because they have bitcoins and that's what they want. No, no. There, there are people who absolutely believe that. And, and you know, over a 50 to 100 year time frame, they may even end up being right. But I, 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 whenever something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Um, the fact that there would be one currency to uh, unite them all and in the darkness blind them seems a, a little crazy to me. They've not heard of the euro, probably. Well, so this, and this is it. You look at actually the macroeconomic and microeconomic issues that Southern Europe is having versus Northern Europe. You, you look at yeah, the issues with the euro. You look at all of the challenges that creates, and they go, no, but because internet protocol. And, and that's overly simplistic for economics. Right? I, I don't think you can apply the simplicity of, well, TCIP was really simple and solved for communications. Therefore, Bitcoin is the TCIP of money. <clears throat> maybe not. Um, but then maybe we're just we, we're too close to the economics of it and we're just missing some, some genius in the simplicity. I don't know. Well, well somebody who's um, you know, a, a bit closer to that simplicity is, is, is Frank Schull, isn't it? Frank's the CEO over at Cefello, and I know you've talked to him recently, Simon. So should we have a listen to what he said? Yes, please. Thanks for having me, Simon. Good to see you again. Yeah, very welcome to the show, Frank. So yes, this uh, this Bitcoin halvening. Before before we do get on to that, why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself and who who's the fellow offer for a minute or so? Sure. My name is uh, Frank Schell. I am originally from the Netherlands, living in Sweden, Stockholm, where I founded a little company called Cefello. Infamously, did a deal with Barclays uh, that we you were a little part of. <laughs> um, we, we started as a cryptocurrency uh, uh, brokerage uh, in 2013, and we've since uh, processed uh, for tens of thousands of customers, millions and millions of dollars in and out of cryptocurrency. Uh, so that's basically what we do. And we have larger ambitions to essentially create a new type of bank on top of the blockchain, which is what we're working on in you know, in the caves here. Fantastic, Frank. That's 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 awesome. And uh, so this subject of the halvening, you know, people have been talking about the the, the mining reward halving in Bitcoin. For our audience, can you describe, you know, kind of what a mining reward is, and and then what that halving kind of means? Right. So 
when you talk about the halving and you look about the inflation, so in the regular system, the inflation is when you know the the Federal Reserve prints money, and then that's how money is created. In Bitcoin, it's a little bit different. You have a limited supply of bitcoins that can ever be created, which is 21 million, and it's already predetermined that the year is going to be 2140, where the last bitcoin is going to be mined or created, if you will. So how is that process done? There are two tools essentially to create the money supply. One is the reward that miners get for verifying the transactions, um, which is the creation of the bitcoins. And the other one is the difficulty level that determines how difficult it is for miners to mine bitcoins, by which they can control that blocks are solved every 10 minutes. So those are the two instruments. And every four years, the, the reward for miners is half to meet the money supply to, to, to be in the end be 2140. Um, so in the last time it happened was a couple of years ago and now it just happened again. So it went from 25 bitcoins that every block reward was to 12 and a half. Fantastic. So if, uh, if we've gone from 25 to 12 and a half, what does that mean for the Bitcoin price and what does that mean for the stability of the network? Like is, is Bitcoin going to disappear? Is it going to get stronger? What does it mean? Uh, Bitcoin is the honey badger of money, so it will never disappear, I, I'm afraid. <laughs> right? Uh, but so, you know, if you if you look at it practically, if you had a money an inflation, then that has a certain market value based on you know money supply versus demand. So that will lead to a price. Now, if you cut the inflation by half, theoretically and logically, um, you would assume that the price would go up, which is exactly what it did last time, where it went. 10 times up in price. Now, the question, however, is in this case is, of course, the market has been more mature, the mining mining operations are larger, and what effect has it does it have on the mining operations themselves? And, and will actually the reverse happen? Now, so far, so the happening as we speak has already happened. Uh, it's not been the case. The mining hash rate has not been affected, and the price has been stable, at least for now. It hasn't really fluctuated anything. So it's it's a sort of a wait and see what's going to happen next. It's interesting then. So the the mining companies now are, are almost like these these absolutely huge conglomerates of of, of companies who may have priced in uh, to to their operations the fact that the amount of money they were going to get from mining Bitcoin was going to decrease. It's almost like if somebody mining gold knew that the price of gold was going to halve um, in two years, they'd start preparing for that early. Investors hmm. would price that in before the event happens. Do you, is that what you what you think's happened? Well, well, definitely. So to give an example, there was another company here in in Sweden, which called KNC Miner, and they were anticipating the happening and saw that for them it wouldn't be profitable to to continue operations. So they actually declared bankruptcy ahead of the happening. So that was a direct event that led to you know uh, the the happening event directly led to them declaring bankruptcy. And and but and since then, I, and 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 already for the last years, I would say it's it's dominated by the Chinese miners. They have very low energy costs. They have the best chips, and obviously they have anticipated the happening and and are able to carry that that happening reward. So, what's your thoughts on the concentration then of mining power, um, especially um, with with these large Chinese conglomerates? Is, is that a, a concern for the network? Does that make the network kind of systemically risky from? From your perspective, or, or is there something in the protocol itself that, that would prevent that from happening? I wouldn't necessarily say it makes it risky, right? Because it was, as soon as the miners act against the truth of the ledger, they would destroy their own value. So in terms of the actual network security, if you will, 
uh, it doesn't necessarily affect it at all. However, you know, the reality is that the mine concentration does mean that China is essentially mining Bitcoin. And the consortiums that exist in China actually cooperate with each other as well. So the effective mining control is probably far beyond 51% by one party. So that is a concern, but it's, it's really hard to actually uh, decentralize it again. So the, there's obviously a lot of debate about that, but it's it's hard when it's just the rule of, of money. So if you look at something like Ethereum, they, they try to introduce something like proof of stake, which is a different approach to, to, to mining, uh, to, to, to re-decentralize the, the, the network. In Bitcoin, that's going to be uh, much more challenging. That, that makes a lot of sense. I guess you can see why some large organizations might have um, concerns when it, when it's so centralized, but I guess um, the ability to see everything that's happening in, a, in an open, transparent ledger allows everybody to see that, hey, whilst these operations are in China, what they're doing is actually maintaining a record of truth for everyone, and they're getting an economic reward out of it. Does that mean Satoshi's white paper is, is maintaining you know, kind of integrity in the network, even though we don't know who these payments processors, who, the, who these miners are on the network, um, and indeed, we may even have some distrust of them. Isn't that the very point of Bitcoin, that you can distrust who the miners are, but then still believe that the, they will maintain the truth because of the maths, because of the protocol? Yeah, exactly. The incentives are constructed in such a way that even if you don't necessarily trust the miners, you, you can even trust the, the distrust within the mining operations as well. But ultimately, it's an open record. So if there's anything going haywire with the with the um, the ultimate truth of the ledger, the, the blockchain, then people would discover that pretty pretty soon. And and that will be a reason then obviously to distrust Bitcoin as a whole. And and you know when you have the amount of investments going into these operations as you have in China, there's definitely no incentive like logically speaking, like uh, if they are driven by economics and not <laughs> by the sheer, sheer uh, um, will to destroy Bitcoin, uh, then the economic incentives are uh, are just fine in, in, in them controlling the mining power. Interesting. So do you think that um, the Chinese mining conglomerates uh, achieving the scale they have in their mining operations has, has prevented us moving to a fee-based economy because th th there is some talk in the Satoshi white paper that over time we would switch from you know uh, Bitcoin transactions being free to actually paying small fees for Bitcoin transactions as our way of paying uh, for the network you know everybody would contribute to this decentralized network running but actually what we've got is a very concentrated network at the moment is that flip coming at the next halvening maybe is, is there a point where that needs to come and, and what do you think happens next so, so when it comes to the fee market, actually, if anything, the miners are supporting the move towards a fee market uh, by not adopting a block size increase, right? So because the blocks are full, you are forcing users to start paying to be prioritized on the network. So that has been happening. The blocks are like on average now, now let me see, it's around nine, uh, 900 kilobytes. So almost, you know, on average, it's hitting the one megabyte uh, maximum that is currently on the blockchain. So that means that everyone is already forced now to 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 pay a fee. So they they since they haven't accepted the blockchain uh, a block size increase from like for instance Bitcoin Classic, they they are forcing that fee market right now. So that's um, interesting. What, 
define um, a block size increase for me. So there's there's a certain amount of transactions that can go into a block that are then added to the Bitcoin's blockchain. And there was a debate in the Bitcoin community about whether or not we increase that size. That's almost like saying your email can only be, what, what was it, one megabyte? It's one megabyte, yeah. And there have been different different proposals on how to scale it up. Okay, so we, we have this hard cap on you know, kind of how many transactions can go in. And because there's this hard cap on how many transactions can go in, if you want your transaction to go in you know, quickly and, and to get done, then the miners are saying, well, pay us and we'll prioritize your transaction. And actually, you know, it, it, if not, you could be waiting several hours for your transaction to come through when the network is busy. Is that, is that fair, Frank? Uh, that is that is correct. Yeah, yeah. And 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 when when it hit the maximum capacity, a company like uh, Blockchain at Info, for instance, saw thousands of support tickets of people complaining about the congestion. Now, what we've also seen is efforts by companies like, for instance, Bitco, to to create products like Bitcoin Instant, where they do they actually take the settlement risk for the consumer, so they can still have it instant, right? So, and then there are things like the Lightning Network and and Blockstream that are actually anticipating a fee market where they want to move the the Bitcoin uh, traffic, the sort of the currency transaction traffic off the blockchain, where it's just periodically clearing on the Bitcoin blockchain, for which you would have to pay a fee. So there is this incentive to actually force this fee market uh, from some you know, companies that look at this commercially, as well as the miners. So Frank, last question, been very informative so far. My, my last question for you is really around the, the slowness in the network and the congestion in the network. So, you know, people complain about it being very, very slow. Um, there's a potential for you know, new technologies to make that go a bit faster. I look at the um, way Visa and MasterCard works and people say, well, Visa and MasterCard uh, does you know, uh, 40,000 transactions per second, but it doesn't actually settle those transactions. It just authorizes those. So, um, you know, do you see a similar thing happening in, in Bitcoin where um, you could have something where the Lightning Network or some of these other technologies or companies taking settlement risk would reduce the authorization, uh, you know, would increase the authorizations up to near visa speeds and the settlement in the background, um, if it takes uh, a few hours is far better than three days. I mean, would, would you agree with that? So yeah, Bitcoin itself can do about, at the current block size uh, limit, around seven transactions per second, right? So if you're talking about 54,000 uh, transactions per second, it obviously can't match that unless something significantly is done about the block size. So that's why these technologies like the Lightning Network are being developed to, to do exactly that, to, to instead of seeing Bitcoin itself as a currency, to see it as the new clearing network where uh, the transactions are, you know, they call it off-chain because they don't directly clear on the Bitcoin blockchain, but they're being cleared off-chain with different technology. And then, but it's it's packed again, sort of the Bitcoin in a way that it is cleared on the Bitcoin blockchain. And that can be periodically, as long as you trust that provider of that technology, then you, you can transact in that way at, at whatever you know a non-functional requirements you would like it to be that doesn't matter so but but that, that that's the way blockstream and companies like that are designing their systems non-functional requirements now you're talking dirty to me frank i like it i know right uh, i know how to talk to you but simon i know what you love <laughs> but, all right frank uh, so that's that's absolutely fantastic i mean just before we before we leave you how can people find out more about cephalo what where do they need to go 
Well, that's just a fellow.com, I suppose. And uh, you sign up and you get going. Beautiful, Frank. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, just just before we leave the news, then there's there's kind of one uh, other big thing that's clearly happened over the last uh, the last seven days is um, Anna has got, got married, and it wasn't just a small wedding; it was an awesome wedding. You know, I've seen the the video of this one. It was kind of almost a, a trailer for some sort of epic sci-fi adventure in terms of what was going on. So, Anna, congratulations! You, you where where did you get married? I got married in Sicily last Friday, and it was amazing. There were two hundred thirty people, but only two people in fintech, and I think that was a mistake. Now thinking back, had I known, I would have had at least three or four tables of fintech people. Well, well just just for the conversations of the the sort of ceremony, at least. Exactly. Anything, right? I was thinking of doing a Brexit panel in between, yeah. just like having people discuss the implications of Brexit. But I thought that might be a bit of a. Or somehow thing. having a ceremonial blockchain uh, element to the. Yeah, what did you get married? On the so I got married in the, in a church that's called Saint um, something of the chain. So that's close enough, okay. right? And I only realized it later, but chain are people more connected with me chaining down. I'm sure husband. we can put your vows on the blockchain in perpetuity. We yes. can add it to a yeah. uh, transaction. So, so I do genuinely believe that the Bitcoin blockchain will survive a nuclear war. So if you want your wedding to survive the nuclear wars <laughs> that are clearly coming. Then why not? Why, why not? not? To, to, to be fair though, the, the ceremony and the, the, the vows are usually till death do part, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, like the, the, the kind yeah. of holocaust that yeah. comes after. But, but no, the, the event looked amazing, like absolutely amazing. Amazing. You look spectacular. Your groom looks spectacular. So absolutely, congratulations on uh, on getting hitched. Thank you. And I think that probably brings us to the end of the news for this week. We're going to hear a little bit more about Bud now, though. So Jamie, Ed, tell us more about Bud. Pleasure. Yeah. So Bud really essentially is what we see as a consumer platform. So what that means is we're working in the financial space. So we looked at the entire financial industry, all the different players, the new companies, old companies, and thought, how can, as a consumer, anyone make sense out of this? So the first step really was to try and figure out more about yourself, so understand your own data, what you do, your behavior, who you are as a person, sort of get that into a platform, essentially get that into some sort of piece of data, and then from there, go and try and to learn about what products could be useful, and what products you do use already will impact that, and try and kind of make a picture of your financial life, and then engage with the right products and existing products in a unified experience. Um, I think that's because our belief is that one product or one company can't service one person and can't service everyone. Everyone's different in themselves. People change from year to year. So the, the right product for me now might be a different product to the product a year in a year's time. Um, and the product that's right for me might not be right for Jamie or for anyone else. So that's where we saw we believe in the market. So we thought, okay, we'll build a marketplace. Um, and help people to create choice and help people to then leverage that marketplace by using that marketplace. So, so who, who's actually the customer of Bud then? Are we talking about the people that come to the platform or are we talking about end consumers? Yeah, so it's the end consumer is the, uh, is the customer of Bud and everything's being built with them in mind. So making this big industry of, of finance, new fintech players and, um, and traditional banks kind of presenting all of that information in a way that's super easy for them to navigate, in a way they're kind of used to it, uh, used to. So it's a little bit like Amazon. It's a marketplace where you can go and shop for these these financial products and you add essentially these products to a dashboard, like a little profile that you, um, that, you, that, you that you have. So you can just engage in all of the products that suit your life and your needs um, through one portal. That's the, that's the dream. So people tend to, oh, what's the gateway drug? How do people kind of get into it? Because I, I know... Uh, 
um, money dashboard, for instance, yeah. been around for a long time, mm -hmm. and you know, arguably have struggled with like what is the the fundamental problem that drives people sure. to use this thing. Um, I think that goes back to choice again. So uh, the reason I use, let's say, Amazon again is different to why someone else would use it. You can start with people's bank accounts. You can start with, maybe you have four FX platforms and you want to use all of those. Okay, so you can start there. You can start by just shopping around. So what we try to do again, and when people start to use the platform, they'll see that the entry point is different for everyone. And it's really dependent on who you are and, and why you're there in the first place. But obviously, there's a, we have to then try and target a specific person. So, I mean, I think the, the easiest way for people to understand it is if people have a few different financial products. I mean, 52% of the UK have more than one bank account. I'm sure you guys all know that. So, I mean, there's one use case. So, twinning, so twinning your bank accounts with Bud um, and your credit cards with Bud, giving you one place to see, you know, how much have I spent, um, how much have I spent by category across all of these, um, uh, all of these accounts. You know, it's, just, it's, a, it's a nice way so that people can view that information and also have an idea of how to plan to either save money or do whatever they want. But then there are people who are, who are kind of highly engaged in the finance space and they have a number of different products. Mm -hmm. um, so it moves beyond just twinning bank accounts and credit cards, but what if I want to see how my crowdfunding accounts, see how all my investments are doing? What if I want to check out my, you know, I've, I've got a robo-advisor that I'm using that I want to keep tabs on, but you know, I want to do it all in one place. Yeah. You know, how, that's, that's the kind of the ethos behind it is, and that's the, that's the big use case, is how do I do this all in one place? So I guess there's, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the sort of unbundling of banking by, mm -hmm. you know, death for 5,000 cuts mm -hmm. in fintech. So do you guys sort of see yourselves sort of rebundling up what a kind of a new wave of bank could be? Yeah, in a sense, I mean, we, we, we sort of want to do two things. I and mean, we want to rebundle uh, for the consumer side. We also want to encourage competition. So encourage the marketplace. So if there's more unbundling of the bank or unbundling of a larger financial service of any kind, that's hopefully a good thing because they're targeting different needs of different people. So if we can be directly with the consumer and consumer can get access to the best innovation that's perfect for them, then maybe that causes more unbundling in a way as well. So kind of both. So would a goal for you to be to help a consumer who typically uses one or two apps to have more choice in terms of what they can aggregate and more choice, like almost like a, a, a money supermarket or, or any or confused.com or these sorts of things. So you've actually got an ability to shop for a product, um, but it might be a product you've never had before, like um, a crowdfunding product mm -hmm. or a robo-advisory product. So I am a you know, person of, of an average age working in an average job, and I have my bank account and my savings account and my credit card. Using Bud for the first time, I might be able to get a crowdfunding product because you would package it in a certain way. Have I understood that right? I think I think more on the if it's right for you as the person. Yeah. So if if that's what is suited to you or you have some sort of risk appetite or you have some spare money that you want to invest in different places, mm -hmm. then then those products would become available to you or you'd be able to discover them. So there's an element of almost like, sorry to cut a question, yeah, no, there's, there's almost like the nutmeg thing where you're looking for people's uh, risk appetites and all the robo-advisory thing. Like, who are you as a profile? Yes. So I'm going to profile you as the individual mm -hmm. customer and then I'm going to target the products that are out there that you might not even know about and I'm going to make it super easy for you to get one of those. Is yeah. that kind of the... We've got a few ways in which um, we can come up, we'll probably come onto it later, for people to find products. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, when we talk about products, we are talking about, you know, the, these brands, the brands themselves. Um, it's, you know, we don't do any white labeling or anything. So people are shopping brands, 
so those brands are able to kind of build trust and mm. you know build all, all of those things that they that they want to do and build a connection with their with their customers you know from within within bud but essentially yes you can you know if you know what you're looking for or you want to have a little shop around we've got a services uh, dashboard where you can almost do a lot of window shopping and research and you know and even just that as a resource is you know having all of these players in one space so you can compare contrast get information you know understand it all is something that is not really existing anywhere else anyway so i mean it seems like there's going to be a whole you know new industry a new mm-hmm. uh, segment of mm-hmm. aggregators especially psd2 yeah. like apis banking and that, that kind of thing of which i guess you're one of the first players where are you sort of where are you in, in the kind of Funding, having mm-hmm. the team, what have you kind of built so far? So in terms of the build, we are ready to go. We've built it. We've got the sort of web portal ready to go. We've got Android and iOS built. Um, we're waiting on a few regulatory bits. Um, we've had a very broad regulation. Um, not deep, not sort of like a bank or anything no. like that, but sort of across different sectors. So making sure that equally when you're on a one platform, you're seeing loads of different products, you're not being confused and you're getting the right information in the right way. So that's sort of the bit that we're waiting on and, and working on right now, so we have to get that right, definitely. So, um, so t- yeah. tell me more about that. Like, yeah. which regulators are you sort of engaged with? What are you like? Um, how are you how are you regulating? What's your license? So essentially, it will be across a few different things. So promotions are very often the marketplace and the discovery of tools, and simply having those tools on, on the platform requires that. There may be some payment stuff. So we're looking at some really interesting stuff. as okay. It's not just having all your products in one place and be able to use them, it's being able to use them ubiquitously, connected and move money around and that kind of stuff. So there's some payment stuff in there with the FX stuff as well. The other side is on the promotion of um, investments. So finding investments, understanding investments, and then credit broking. So looking at peer-to-peer, credit cards as well, all different types of lines of credit. Um, so essentially, I mean, you should be able to do anything on the platform action-wise that you could do across any different financial service. Some more complicated products, taking a little bit more time, some stocks, things like that. But yeah, so the regulatory is across the board, but that kind of, that, that, those kind of core four pieces tend, tend to kind of cover that um, as a sort of regulator, but yeah. So, so is that with sort of lawyers or with the, with the regulators themselves or? So we've got a few different things, yeah. So okay. there's some lawyers, some consultants we're using. Okay. Um, we're trying to get in the sandbox. Okay. Uh, I'll say that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I think there's actually. I think there is going to be something that's coming out in the next two years that will describe us specifically as a product, um, and that will help identify. But obviously, being kind of the early people, then we have a few more challenges. So, so this happened with um, peer-to-peer lenders, and it happened with crowdfunders. Like until there was the term peer-to-peer lender, and until there was the term crowdfunder, it's like, what are you? Um, yeah. And then, it, I, mean, I think that's kind of really nice that you guys have been able to describe what you do, mm-hmm. but eventually like the aggregator thing may stick, or there may become a label, and yeah. it will probably not do your business justice, no. but actually <laughs> it will yeah, allow yes. people to kind of understand what it is, yes. there's a definition behind that. We, yeah, we've been doing, uh, so some of the PR that we've um, that we've had go out um, the closest thing that we've been able to describe ourselves as is a number of things that we've also been described as yeah. but what we've been saying is it's like money supermarket but for millennials you know it doesn't it doesn't stop when they've given you a solution it includes that solution so it's it's that tech first and removing barriers from using from using stuff so that's yeah, that we've, we've called ourselves that for, for a while now. Asterisk. People have also, yeah, there's with an asterisk. asterisk. With an asterisk. <laughs> we're, yeah. not we're not site. a comparison site. So <laughs> there's that as well. So, yeah. Discovery plus acquisition. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's interesting you say that. Fintech app store is another one that people have. Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of describe this uh, random, I always kind of run everything by my mum. It's kind of like, 
bad parenting, good yeah. parenting, depending <laughs> on the perspective. <laughs> of the but I, I kind of describe what you guys do to her, uh, and actually this is the type of thing that she would be interested in mm -hmm. as well. You know, so it's interesting that you go for the millennials, but actually, you know, people who have maybe um, you know a few more years and a, and a bit more money type thing mm -hmm. actually might might be a really interesting target because it's know, actually yeah. more complex your financial circumstances. The simpler you want the user experience to be as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, my mom's totally down with internet banking, but actually things like mobile banking mm -hmm. right now, just because of the different touch points and different sort of security method methods are, uh, you know, a bridge too far, shall we say. So, you know, I, I guess mm -hmm. starting at millennials, but maybe working Yeah, I mean, I think because it's a technology, it's a, it's a technology device, we're, we're also device agnostic, so we haven't gone mobile only. We've built across all platforms because we still see that as many people are doing mobile banking and internet banking, and those numbers will change as years go forward, projected, but not massively, in terms of who does what. We get responses on Twitter saying, uh, we had a press release, um, or we were featured in the BBC recently, uh, about uh, apps that you can do finance uh, mm -hmm. stuff with, and we've had a few bits of feedback saying, oh, I'd never use an app to do my finances, it just doesn't feel secure, or as secure as using my desktop. So we've, you know, that's why we've built it, um, you know, our CTO uh, and co-founder George, he was like, we'll do it desktop first because at the end of the day, we can, you know, we can make desktop into, into mobile and we can satisfy the needs of people who, you know, who don't feel comfortable using their phone or they don't feel, mm -hmm. you know, safe. They want to use something else. So yeah, we've, that's why we've, we've, we've done it that way um, and to be as relevant as possible to as many different people. Yeah, so we're looking at pensions and, and everything like that, and mortgages, and, mortgages and, and some more tra more traditional stuff. You know, I mean, the lion's share of what people use aren't new fintech products, not yeah. by a long way. So there's a much sort of traditional stuff we're trying to get in there. Obviously, the fintechs are the early adopters of the early adopters. So, but, but how much? So, so I guess sort of how are you doing this, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, I'm sure um, your CTO will kill you for uh, announcing <laughs> and this and that you're doing it. But in terms of like how much of this is. APIs, mm -hmm. how much is this is, you know, down to what we're sort of seeing coming with things like PSD2. Sure. You know, what, what's the, without giving away the no, secret no, no, sauce, no, no, absolutely. Saying, no, no. What's the, how are you doing this? I couldn't give away the secret sauce even if I wanted to because I don't understand it. Um, <laughs> so, no, essentially, I mean, what is core to us is trying to, you know, bringing in these modules and APIs and, and delivering them in a unified experience and allowing us to sort of quickly plug these things in. So we have a kind of core infrastructure that is very much ours. Um, some of the payment stuff will be very much ours, the discovery. Um, we're doing some really cool stuff with tech search. So if you type something in, like I want to send some money abroad, that should return those products. If you've got the right product, it should just allow you to do that. So there's some, some heavy bits that are ours and, and it's very much the platform, essentially. You know, the products themselves are the service providers. So I guess this is yeah. where I'm going to be more prevalent than they do because I'm yeah. I'm skeptical that it's even possible to do right. Okay. Um, because you know I've I've seen Yodly and mm -hmm. Ewise and you know I've, and uh, and a variety of other mm -hmm. kind of screen scraping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There aren't you know the big banks don't provide APIs. Yeah. So um, so I love the vision. Mm -hmm. I can definitely see it. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess my question is like, is it possible now? Yeah, I mean absolutely. So things like what Yodly do. Um, you know, we have our own take on that. APIs from banks are coming, and maybe not so quick in the UK, but US and Europe, very hot on it. A bank that you know probably very well has an API that we play around <laughs> with all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's very possible from the service providers right now. So in terms of giving a banking experience, you can use things like Yodly to understand your banking data, categorize that, get some insights. Um, you know, all the, we've got about 30 partnerships with major fintech companies in the UK. That's all of those should be integrated by the end of the year. 
um, so applying for peer-to-peer, checking your crowdfunding, um, these things are coming. I think that's what was really interesting for us is that when we started these conversations, it was because we wanted to build a marketplace. And in three or four years' time, we wanted to do the PSD2 thing. And we found that, oh, wow, these APIs are ready to go. Some of these companies have been SDKing out their entire platform, so why don't you just rebrand it as your own thing and, and have sure. it on the platform? So, so that's very much yeah. in the kind of the new fintech space, mm-hmm. peer-to-peer, FX, yeah. you know, money transfer, you know, the next generation of banks, I guess. Yes. And I guess you're looking at the, the tide then moving mm-hmm. uh, into the more traditional players, and in the meantime, there are ways of there are APIs that you can you know exactly use third parties. There are ways around. I mean, the the the, the platform now will be very powerful. You can use uh, a different bank account. Maybe let's say if you've got an account in Spain, you could use that. You could have information from your UK bank account and you could use an FX platform that we have an API with to move money between those accounts. There's one use case. Three or four years down the line, you, you should be able to do everything. Or actually a year down the line. You know, with some peer-to-peer people, they're replatforming their entire system. Some comparison sites are replatforming everything into an API module. So it, it's actually amazing what's actually going on because like all this stuff, and like one of the reasons we began, the big problem is cu- customer acquisition. Um, mm. Even for the big comparison sites, it's customer acquisition because it's not seamless, it's not in your life. And if we can offer that, for them it's great, but for people it's even even more powerful. Yeah, I think that getting a consistent experience you know, by having um, APIs with banks, so those daily tasks that you do on your internet banking, like you know, just, you know, just checking your balance, paying a friend, you know, once those daily tasks become available, you know, to a platform like us, then you know the stick is 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 quite is quite good. Uh, people are logging into their internet banking and checking their balances up to four times a week. You know, probably some some people uh, more. We got yeah, a no, guy in the office who checks every single day. You know, and if Bud can be this place where it's not not just you know your first direct account or your NatWest account, it's all accounts, aggregated transactions categorized spending, you know, suddenly that is, mm. you know, that's, that's really powerful. I, well, I can, I can definitely see that from a consumer perspective, mm. you know, like from, from me as, a, mm-hmm. as an individual, like this would be great, because mm-hmm. I've got a bunch of kind of apps on my phone that actually if I can aggregate up would work really, really well for me mm-hmm. uh, in a collective. You know, from a bank's perspective, you know, and th- I guess this is, this is the whole um, negative view from their perspective around PSD2, yeah. you know, actually, you know, things like internet banking cross-selling, for mm-hmm. example, for you mm-hmm. know, a, a big bank. You sure. Know, how, how's the response been from banks so to you guys? It's interesting. There's two sides to everything. But um, you know, one side definitely for us is we want, we, we want to work, we're working with these service providers. We're not trying to replace anyone. We're trying to work with them to give the best consumer experience possible. And, and from a bank's point, they've got like 30 or 40 different consumer products. And if they don't, if they don't have one of those products in a person, then how can they get to that person? So from their side, if, if they have a product that's right for, for a user, um, and that user d- wants a credit card, and their credit card is right, but their bank isn't, then they should be able to acquire that credit card easily through one line and not have to acquire everything else on the side or not be sort of pushed that way. Mm-hmm. So there, there's different things, and obviously it can allow people to get more differentiated products. Um, I don't think... I think it's just more about better consumer experience. I think that would be better for the banks in to retain their customers yeah. as well. I think you know this is the beauty of PSD too, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I guess there's a you know given the Brexit element in yeah. terms of what's happened here, you know how would you know if uh, Europe kind of sailed off into the uh, into the channel mm-hmm. and uh, you know PSD two didn't exist here, how would that kind of impact you? And um, you know would you enjoy living in Berlin? <laughs> I think I, I think I'd love to live in Berlin. Mm. I like London as well though. So um, no, but. 
I mean, to be honest, I think with, with if the PSD2 didn't happen here, I think um, the consumer experience we give right now to people or that we've built for people is still there without that. Now, it's definitely would improve things from an experience side for the consumer. Equally, I mean, what happens if more differentiated markets are throughout Europe? That's more products for people that live in different countries mm -hmm. or that move around as much as we do. So I think for us, that creates more of a need for one consumer platform to be able to use those tools ubiquitously. Yeah. Where we see possibility for kind of more confusion and you know more complex financial solutions, for us, you know, that's almost a bit of a, a bit of a positive because the you know, need for something which harmonizes these mm -hmm. things and just makes them you know, super easy to, to understand and use, then that's kind of where our our idea and, and, the, and, the, and the business model for what we're doing starts to thrive really well. That makes total sense. If you talk to any expat who's tried to move countries, even in Europe, yeah. and they try and get their first bank account, it's mm -hmm. a horrible experience. And yeah. actually, if you can give them access to that bank account and have them spend it here and then allow some of that data to flow across, yeah, that's, exactly. a, that's a really nice mm -hmm. use case. And also opening up competition, I think, across continental Europe. And, and I think there's an interesting point around kind of the banks blocking and, and, and across Europe piece, which is, uh, I saw a study somewhere, and I'll try to look this up um, f so that we can follow up with it, that uh, the amount of banks that actually sell eight of their core product lines to mm -hmm. their customers, like yeah. so let's say you've got a bank with 10, 20 million customers, yeah. you'll have less than 0.1% of that customer base has actually got all eight products. So if banks yeah. are really honest about it, mm -hmm. it's more about retaining what they've yeah. got, I think, And but actually, can they see it as growth and can they see it as optimism? And it's very hard to have an optimistic story if you're in a, in a bank at the moment. So it could be interesting. But my view is that they're blocking on security at the mm -hmm. moment. So they're, they're saying, well, you guys aren't going to be secure for our customer sure, base. Sure, what's, sure. what's your response to that? I think, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's a, an interesting thing for them to say, obviously, yeah. <laughs> um, on security. And it's hard to say too much on security with well being very secure at the same time. Yeah. Um, so what we, we are trying to add additional layers of security. Yeah. So on our platform, to do anything on your bank, you will have to log into your bank account with your logins. It's the same security. We then go further and add additional layers to even get into the app to the first place. So if you, if you're one of the things that we found really interesting is of all the things that were available to people, um, why is why am I not able to add levels of security to my bank? Wow. And so we kind of looked at this and we thought that's really weird. You know, if I'm kind of security conscious and I think, oh, I want to add some extra level of 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 biometric security, mm -hmm. I should be able to. And it kind of ties into Bud's like personalization um, kind of ethos where, and so we're working to, uh, when, we, when we kind of launch um, later on in the year, like general, general launch, um, you'll be able to request at, uh, at extra levels of, of security. It's funny you mentioned that. That, mm -hmm. that came up consistently with research that I did when mm -hmm. I worked at a, a big bank. But yeah. it was kind of security is a bank-defined thing, mm -hmm. not a customer one, which, yeah. to your point, is wrong. Isn't it? Yeah. Because, yeah. because yeah. actually, when you look at the you know the reasons of not do you know are people arguing why they wouldn't go on Money Dashboard mm -hmm. for a variety of yeah. existing providers? Mm -hmm. The fact that they would have to give you banking credentials of that could arguably use be used to empty their account, mm -hmm. you know, off, I think does come up. Yes. And, yeah. and I guess yeah. has pushed the whole PSD2, you know, um, Treasury Open Banking Working yeah. Group agenda. Exactly. I mean, if you look at what people have been doing uh, like that, you know, compare that to what how much more secure APIs would be. You know, that would be that's a move in the right direction. Absolutely. And it's standardized security as well as PSD. That was also something that comes with it. So, you know, that's that's a good thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. But but I guess you I mean you mentioned business model. 
and that's always the kind of the fintech question as mm -hmm. to well this is great yeah. consumers will love it yeah. there'll be APIs it'll be a great thing yeah. it's free how does it make money yeah. <laughs> it's, it's also it's free for consumers as well so it's okay. um, yeah so there's no real barrier to entry so who, who pays your salaries oh, yeah no one right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so essentially, if people find the right product through Bud um, and they use those products, um, we, we get paid back on an affiliate model. And be, sort of going further than that, what we believe is that this is this should be your product. So the idea around Bud and the way it's named, the reason it's named Bud is because it's yours and you own it. So if you're using the platform to create benefit for yourself, you should receive benefit. So what we're, we're working towards, which is this is maybe something that people think is a bit crazy, but we want to actually reward people for using the right products or find the right products. So we will get kickback from our partners when they find products, but then we will give the percentage of that back to the consumer. So we want people to be able to actually make money from doing the right things, and I think reward that behavior as well. So, so on, that, on that right thing model, you know, I guess where most banks are is they sort of promote their own products. Mm -hmm. But you, you guys have got kind of a recommendation engine, haven't you, in terms of actually what you're, you're putting around? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I guess this is some of the rationale for getting a bit closer to some of the regulation around yes. kind of promotion, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Tell us a little bit so, more about that. Yeah, so the, um, we, call it, we call it a discovery engine, um, or you know, just the, it's a discovery on, on the platform. And this was designed around people like me, actually, who before working at Bud, I had no idea about any of these cool products that were out there. Just no idea. Um, and worse than that, there was no way of me to like to go and find out which one would be right for me. Um, so that's the that's the kind of the idea behind the, the discovery engine, which is a series of lifestyle questions, uh, which are non-invasive. So instead of asking you how much do you earn, we ask you how much money have you got left at the end of the month, and the answers are emojis. You know, so it's like you could be super happy or you could be holy, you know, it's terrible. <laughs> and so yeah, so it's seven questions in its current in its current state. And at the end of it we can, you know, we can kinda of say people with a lifestyle like you would benefit massively from products like these. And it's, you know, super easy. You don't have to you know, you don't have to think too hard, you don't have to go through any like old bank statements or get your pension record or anything like that, you know. It should just be something you can do in two minutes and at the end of it, you know, you have a curated list of things that you go, Okay, these look interesting I've heard of this maybe I'll go and read a bit more about that and you know if we've done a good job which you know hopefully we have it will be something that will you know you will see the benefit quite quickly and you can just go ahead and, and, and apply for it so there's there's almost a kind of financial education piece to it as well yeah that, exactly you know, people like you should, could have a look at this and could save money mm -hmm. and do, does it stretch beyond financial products do you end up getting into you know, utilities and retailers and everything else. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, yeah, you know, we have a kind of large ambition and it's a large scope of what we want to do. At the moment, we're sort of focusing on sort of financial and utilities. I think we, we believe that comes into that. Um, so there's interesting stuff that can be done there, definitely. You know, even things like if you want to book a holiday, you know, is your is the are you finding the right flight? You know, we can maybe help with that someday. So you know, it goes quite broad, sort of. Being able to see if you can get a credit card straight away by integrating with a credit scoring agency, so you've got those eligibility tests. I, um, I guess though, you, you know, like integrating mm -hmm. flight booking, you know, like their regulations are a little bit easier. Mm. You kind of oh yeah, jumped yeah. in the deep end. <laughs> oh yeah, hundred percent. So like, so like how, uh, that process of kind of that discovery actually yeah. must, and the fact that you're talking about you know various different accounts, mm -hmm. you're you're spanning different regulators, aren't you? So how, how, what's the what's the experience been like working with the FCA? At the moment. <laughs> We're quite lucky in the UK yeah. that, our, that the FCA is, is very progressive. Yeah. Um, 
and the kind of core values of the S FCA align quite nicely mm. um, with us. We spoke earlier about mm. that, you know, increasing competition to better serve, you know, the customer. Yeah. Um, so that aligns quite nicely um, with 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 what we're doing, you know, and kind of going through the regulation process is mm -hmm. it's, it's long and and and, and tough, but. You know, there, are, there, are pieces that, there are pieces of the platform that we are building that we haven't still figured out how they will be properly regulated. So those won't be launched until they are ready, fig, fully figured out. Um, but this is the yeah. beauty of something like the sandbox though, right? Yes. So like the FCA sandbox yes. is, yeah. is kind of made for new categories yes. and you guys kind of fit into that really perfectly. Yeah. yeah. So that's hopefully what we'll try and do with, with some of that, especially discovery. I mean, I mean, we've got this kind of mad idea that the discovery engine could be owned by hundreds of financial advisors and they could create their own discovery engines and paths and they could be rewarded for doing that and if people found the right products they would rate those paths up and those discoveries up so I probably shouldn't even talk about it because it's way off in the future yeah. but you know how would how would that be regulated for example you know where would that lie would that lie on the platform would it lie with the individual so there's, there's loads of different stuff so we have definitely stuff that we've got ideas and we're building the way we will roll out the platform is when we get the regulatory piece for X, Y, and Z, or for these set of companies, we will then deploy that. So that's kind of how it will work on a rolling basis. We're lucky in the sense that because we're so broad, when we figure out one piece, we can launch that and hopefully get benefit from that on the platform. So, that's so, so when can people sign up? When can people use this? So, so people, people can subscribe now to um, to kind of get information and um, you know be part of our alpha test. Um, What's the URL? Uh, that's uh, this is bird.com. Yeah, it should be just super easy to just sign up. Yeah, and then once they're there, what you know, the people who sign up will be the first people to hear about you know being involved and, and getting their hands on it. Um, we should start rolling out the first pieces within the next couple of months. Yeah. So well, it definitely, this definitely is seems like the type of thing I would benefit from, mm -hmm. so I, I'll definitely go and sign up. Good. So, um, but it'd be really interesting to know a bit more about mm -hmm. you guys actually because okay. you know you're both young gentlemen type things. So sure. Can you give us a bit, bit more of a, an understanding of your background? Like, yeah. you know, are you, you, how old are you both? I'm 26. Ditto. Yeah, same age. Right. We actually grew up in the same town in, in North England. It's funny. And our other co-founder, George. Yeah. <laughs> we're all kind of childhood friends, essentially. Nice. Um, we're in the north. Did, did you see this <laughs> growing, like when you guys were all growing up together, were you like, we're going to kind of revolutionize? Oh, 100%. <laughs> 100%. Oh well, actually, it started, you know, we were playing World of Warcraft and, <laughs> and we realized that. You, you had know, loads of gold. Yeah, yeah. We had <laughs> so much gold and we kept paying people for gold. No. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, look, me and George, my co-founder, technical. We, we, I mean, we literally did. We were young kids playing computer games together. I would build computers with my brother. It was a technology interest to begin with. I still do both those things yeah. now, quite frankly. Yeah. So that's, yeah. I mean, so yeah, yeah. yeah, we play, you know, we have a kind of a gaming hour in the office, which is essentially the same as lunch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's kind of a background. So, um, myself, previously, I was working at Salesforce, uh, where I was working with different tech companies, um, sort of created an interest within FinTech. I was in Dublin using transfer companies and multiple bank accounts and things like that so and part of that was scoping out the industry and figuring out who was what and what they were doing so yeah so that's kind of where some of the sort of seeds of thought came from myself yeah. I'm, uh, so I um, I'm from a branding background um, working a lot of agencies um, started in advertising uh, moved into brand communication um, and strategy work work with huge consumer brands trying to build relationships with you know huge huge amounts of customers across multiple different countries some of the biggest consumer brands in the world i actually live with george who's the co-founder and cto 
and um, mm-hmm. I I put up with these two in the in the flat scheming, you know, coming up with this, coming with this idea, you know, would it be possible? Can it be possible? Can it be done? Um, let's talk to if the people. If only we had someone with marketing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was. Who and could we find? Yeah, it's yeah. funny. It's, it's it's funny. It's funny. They um, Ed had uh, had uh, applied to um, exhibit at uh, Web Summit in, mm. in Dublin, and it was the first real you know, time where he'd gone to people on, on such a scale with the idea to, you know, this is it, you know, is it, is it good enough? It was a fintech education platform at that point. It and was, I, yeah. I designed it in the kind of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in this Nordic colour scheme of like pales and news. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was the most horrendous thing you've ever seen. But, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, um, but the yeah, idea, you know, the yeah. idea was, was great. Had, you know, let's teach people about fintech and, you know, hold all these places. And it was the marketplace idea first. And it, you know, it arose from, Ed asked me if, if I could just go and help. You know, be an extra pair of hands, three people on the stand. You know, we could talk to you know x x many more people, and I did three days, and I think I handed in my resignation two days afterwards. Oh, wow! <laughs> it was yeah. you know yeah. the resignation. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, he'd already handed in his resignation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it was um, yeah, just the response from um, from people. You're in a you're in an environment where they kind of get the idea before you've even mm-hmm. finished selling it to them. So it really resonated, and it was you know it's a it's a it's a cool challenge you know finance. I'd never worked in finance before. I'd done bits and pieces for the large utility companies, um, like Thames Water and SSE. So I've done kind of big incumbent. I've dealt with big incumbent companies, but the nimbleness of this and the fact that there was a, a kind of there was already a resonance with 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 real people was super attractive. So how long ago was that? That was in eight months ago. October eight. that yeah. I. Yeah, end, yeah. Of oct- end of October, early early December, um, and we've been five people, yeah. like I said, in a basement in uh, in Moorgate since. Yeah. Um, we moved. We've just moved yeah. uh, three stories upwards in the same building. Above um, ground. It's amazing. With a window. Natural <laughs> light. It's amazing. With a window. Um, that's progress, though. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that is three stories of progress. Yeah. Going up in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe soon we'll be level thirty nine height. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, you are right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> But we're, so, we're, so, so what? Um, what do you wish you'd have known back then? Uh, now. Oh my God! If I'd have known, <laughs> if I'd have known. Actually, the same. I think absolutely the same. If I'd have known what was required to get to where we are and what's going to be required to go even further, that would have been massively daunting. Like you know, and and it's been step by step, learning piece by piece by piece by piece. So actually, not knowing stuff. Okay, actually, I would have been known more about regulatory and, you know how to find a consultant or who is a good consultant or a good lawyer and what protection, all that kind of stuff would be great knowledge. But if I knew everything, every step of the way, then yeah, that would You wouldn't bother, would you? Well, I don't know. I don't know (laughs) know if I would have bothered, but you know, it would definitely be more daunting. And I think this is honestly where a lot of the incumbents are. They know how hard it is so they don't bother. (laughs) But actually there's something about one, um, being entrepreneurial, Mm -hmm. I think you want to take it on. And two, actually just going and discovering it, you'll find a different path. Because everybody assumes you have to do it one way and you guys go, well, I found a different way. That's we would have never, we would have never, I think, made the platform if we would have come from a financial background either. Um, we might have started with a bank, or we might have started with a particular service in mind. Um, yeah, we started with a, a consumer problem, you know, that was kind of being experienced by some people. But as people became more global citizens and adoption of these uh, companies became more and more, it could it could turn into a big problem, or it could turn into just a big like messy, you know, bundle of stuff. So it started with that consumer problem first, and then that's how it how it built out. And you know, as, as I said, we we have got platform that we have now if we were all 
finance people, who knows? Um, well, I, I kind of always think sometimes ignorance is bliss, isn't it? And, uh, and like I say, if, uh, you know, everybody started a new category, then yeah. uh, where would the fun be, quite frankly? So, uh, yeah. Ed, Jamie, thank you very much for joining us. Really Cheers. appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Thank you. So that's the end of show two. A few shout outs before we just close up. Thanks to all of the people who joined our episode one and the Brexit feedback. Um, much appreciated. Hopefully you heard a, a kind of a better quality of audio that came through on this one. Next Money will be back in London on Wednesday, September 14th. And myself, Jason and Simon will actually be talking there. So if you'd like to go and find uh, tickets for that, you can find them at uh, www.ldn2016 dot nextmoney.org if you'd like to get in touch with us you can email us on fintechinsider at 11fs.co.uk you can also follow us on twitter at fintechinsiders with an s and check us out at www.11fs.co.uk you can read a little bit more about the guests on this show this week. Uh, you can find Anna Herrera at Anna Herrera on Twitter. Frank, you can find at Cefalo.com as well as Frank Schul on Twitter. That's Schul, S-C-H-U-I-L. And thank you very much again to Ed and Jamie coming in from Bud. You can find these guys at www.thisisbud.com. And also on Twitter, you can find them at at this underscore is underscore bud on our next podcast we will have the ex-cio of ubs oliver busman as well as being joined by oscar williams Groot from business insider so from level 39 thank you very much for listening to episode two 